0: I'm grateful to open the Word of God to you this morning. The sermon this morning comes from Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8, and as you uh, find it in your bulletin or in your Bible, I want to read a couple quotes concerning the topic this morning. Mark Dever writes that forgetfulness of God's grace is one of the enemy's greatest tools in the war against our souls. Forgetfulness of His grace, one of the enemy's greatest tools. Charles Spurgeon says, Do you not find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Some creature steals away your heart and you're unmindful of Him upon whom your affection ought to be set. Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should have your eyes steadily fixed upon the cross. It is the incessant round of world, 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 the constant din of earth, earth, earth that takes away the soul from Christ. Oh, my friends... Is it not too sadly true that we can recollect anything but Christ and forget nothing so easy as Him whom we ought to remember? While memory will preserve a poisoned weed, it suffereth the rose of Sharon to wither. I want to talk to you this morning from the text in Titus where he says, remind them. And I just want to tell you as a preacher for years, when I got through with my sermon and I would stand at the door and shake hands and want to hear everybody say how wonderful it was and how, wow, it was helpful and, you know, almost drawn to tears and how important I am in their life, the worst thing that people would say was, hey, thanks for the reminder. I don't know why I hated that, but I—it I, I, it was either I, I thought they were kind of pompous, saying I really knew everything you were talking about, so but you know thanks for the reminder. Possibly it could have been self-centered. It could have been me thinking, wait, I thought I just taught them something profoundly new, and they just said, hey, thanks for the reminder. But here in our text, the apostle Paul is writing to Titus. He is writing to Titus, and here is the context. Paul has left this church that he has planted. He's left it in the hands of Titus, and he's like, Titus, I want you to come to me, but before you do that, before you leave this church that I've planted, make sure that there have been godly leaders appointed. And and then he says, here's what the godly leaders need to be. And so chapter 1, he says, here's how uh, those that you appoint to be elders and deacons in your church, here's what their life in the church should look like. And he weaves in what they believe and how they behave. And then in chapter 2 he says, "But before you appoint these leaders, you-, you must see that their belief and their behavior in the home is what we want to see in the church. And so it's as if he's gone from these circles of, of what, what is, what is uh, happening in the heart of the believer between them and Jesus and, and how does that reflect in, in their family Right? How, how does that how does that look in their family, and, and you know that as church people, as Presbyterians, that there are requirements before anybody becomes a pastor, or an elder, or a deacon, or leadership. What does their family look like? And then he says, What does it look like in the church? And this last section in chapter three, he says, What is it going to look like in the world? How will what you believe as Christians affect the world? And so that's where we pick up in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. This is the Word of God. Please stand if you are able. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. In this last month, I celebrated my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. six zero. 0 uh, It was awesome. They're both pretty crazy. Uh, and yet they figured out how to manage life together. They're still living on their own, and they've got it all worked out on pencil and paper and cardboard, and, and they know how to change from the DVR to the satellite. They can do all of that on their own, and, 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 and yet when you see them together, it is as if it is one organism. I mean, it, it, it just really has worked its way out. I spent time this last month with couples who are contemplating getting engaged. I spent time with couples that have been married eight years, 30 years, That'd be me and my wife. And we talked a lot about behavior. And we've done this throughout my life. We've, we've looked at, at, at certain behavior. We do this with each other. We do that with ourselves. We say, why am I doing this? Why am I responding this way? And now, legalism in a church deals only with those externalities. It says, don't be angry. Don't yell at your kids. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we have a whole uh, setup of, of what, what it was supposed to look like on the outside, and we work towards it. But we know, desperately, we know, that what's written there in the sixth-grade center is true. Isn't it interesting? Did you see what's written on, in the cafeteria over there? What does it say on the ward, on, on the wall? Actions speak louder than words. Isn't that interesting? This isn't a Christian school, is it? No. The world knows that. And so, uh, the apostle writing to Titus saying, in this church that we planted in Crete, a place known for its rebellion, a place known for its insurrection, a place that the poets, their own poets had said, is full of lazy gluttons, liars, and beasts. In this place, Titus, that church will bless the world. That church has a responsibility to bless the world. And here is how it's going to happen. It's going to happen from the inside. The gospel of Jesus will change those people from the inside out. To write my sermon in a sentence, it's normally what I do in Grove just so I remember what I'm preaching. It's this. The Christian's behavior in the world must be patterned and fueled by their own salvation experience. The Christian's behavior in the world must be patterned and fueled by their own salvation experience. The Gospel of Jesus Christ works change from the inside out. You deal with a couple and they don't like the behavior of each other. We ask questions, don't we? Why do you do this? Why do you not do this? Why does this make you so angry? And we seek to find what is operating inside, what love or affection or pain, whatever is happening deep inside. And we seek to bring this gospel of Christ to the very inside of a person that's exactly what the apostle is saying here. My big surprise, so we've been studying Titus because you saw on your announcements there, Three Rivers will be particularized on April 22nd, 6 p.m. You're all welcome. We're going to have our own elders ordained. I'm going to be installed. Our deacons will be installed. And so I thought, what better book for us to go through as a church than Titus? As I read through it, before I studied in detail, I thought this book is about leadership and direction in the church. You know what I found? This book, maybe more than any other, is a beautiful harmonizing of the Apostle Paul and the book of James. How many times have people told you, I can't get my, my I, 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 I read James and it says I'm saved by what I do. Show me your salvation by what you do, by your good works. And I read the Apostle Paul, and he says, it's by what I believe. You know what you do? You just go to Titus, because Titus is all about good works. Twice in this passage, in every section, he's bringing them back to good works. And here he's saying, the world will know what happened to you as an individual. The world will know what happens to you as a church. They'll know by your good works. In fact, that's how he ends this text. (laughs) Endeavoring to do good works. Change from the inside out. I don't know about you, but in my life, it has been similar to the outline of Titus. My my life, and for many of us as Christians, we could draw it in circles. We could say, "In, in the center of my heart is this circle, and it's me, and it's Jesus. And, and, and He loves me, and I love Him, and we spend time together, and it doesn't matter what other people think, because Jesus loves me, and I love Him. In that outer circle, then, we find our family. And we hope that that, that family that we, that we know and love, that they also know Jesus. And, and we expect that that family is going to be a little bit different. People will be attracted to a Christian family because they see things that are a little bit different. And so, it makes sense that the apostle would say, as you are with Jesus, you are with your family. And then there's that bigger circle that we call the church, and hopefully that also intersects with our family, and how we operate with folks in the church. But now he's saying, there's a much bigger circle, oh Christian, and it's the world that I've placed you in. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like the rest of this world, in my mind, I feel like saying that they're not my people. The other day, I was pulling into the uh, office there off Main Street in in Grove, Oklahoma. And I don't know if the guy had Tourette's or something, but I I get out of my truck and I'm standing, I'm talking to someone and a guy comes by on a bicycle and he is cussing me upside, one down, and just, just every word. And he just keeps riding his bicycle, just turning around, pointing his finger and yelling at us. You know what I think? That's not my people. That's not my people. Sometimes I think, hey, that's not my system either. When I was a sales manager, and some of the worst people I had work for me were Christians, and that's what they would say to me. I would say, listen, you need to be here on time. Listen, you need to close these deals. Listen, you need to be more driven in your performance here, and they would say, this isn't my system. I don't care about money. I don't don't care about performance. This isn't my system. And I think that's our response even to the world. These aren't my people. This isn't my system. That's not even my president. And the apostles say, no, Titus, they all belong to you, and you belong to them. And so this morning... I want us just to look at two things. First is, is, how does he describe what their behavior in the world is to look like? and We see that in these first two verses. Think of it as him saying, Titus, you need to teach the people that on the biggest stage of their life, the stage that everyone else sees, this is how they are to act. Do not be afraid to say, this is how you are to be. You are to act this way, even Christian when you don't feel like it, and especially when they don't deserve it. Here is how you are to act. Here is what behavior in the world is to look like for you. (coughs) He breaks it down into two categories. The first is rulers, and the second is everybody else. Rulers, he says. Rulers and authorities. Again, against the reputation of the Cretans. Rulers and authorities. He says two things to them. First of all, be submissive. Be submissive to your rulers. Now, of course he is saying in reason, as long as your ruler doesn't demand that you say Caesar is Lord. But, O Christians, in Crete and in Owasso, You're to be submissive to your rulers. You're not like many to take this newfound faith and think it is some excuse for me to not be submissive to the rulers. It's some excuse uh, for me to run away from my commitments. You are to be submissive to the rulers. The rulers are to know that they are blessed because there are Christians in their areas of responsibility. Secondly, he says you're to be ready for good works whenever he says you have opportunity in our community christians should be involved in the things that were just listed on the slide christians should be giving to the needy funding for the hungry thinking about what this walkout may mean for people who need help with their kids thinking about our teachers in grove we support the food pantry the home for abused and battered women, the pregnancy center. We don't require them to be Christians. We don't require them to be in our tribe. We don't require them to be worthy of assistance. You seek to do re- be ready for all good works. That's how we are to behave in the world. Christians should be known as those who look and seek and find opportunities for good works. And then he says in verse 2, and here's what you do for everyone else. The rulers and authorities that are over you, here's what you do, but for everyone else. And he listed in negatives and positive. First, he says, here's these four social attitudes. Two of them are negative. First, don't speak evil. Speak evil of no one. Don't slander. Don't even feel free to spread the negative, even if it is true. Don't spread reports that are evil avoid quarreling secondly he says doesn't mean we don't defend our faith it just means that you're not known as, as someone who speaks and delights in finding the dirt and the evil on others as especially quarrelsome has an aggressive quarreling spirit i, I, I would say for us especially in the non-relational medias you know, I mean, many of us just roll our eyes when we read what Christians write on their Facebook posts. And we're like, I, I, I don't want to say anything because I'm afraid of those who will agree with me. I'm <laughs> more afraid of those that will agree with me, and they'll add some statement to it, and then i got to go and backwards take that out. Especially, I would say, Christians. In the media is where you, in a sense, are, are, are shielded from the real person. Don't speak evil. Avoid quarreling. To everyone else, he says, here's the positives, to be gentle, to be gentle in speech, to be courteous, considerate, meek, and humble. In public, you are a gentle and humble people. You're not fighting for your rights. It's a fairly simple application. How do I react in the greatest sphere of my life? With gentleness and humility. Humility. It's foreign to so many people. My wife works as a librarian in the middle school there at Grove. And she finds herself most days in the middle of conflict. And she finds herself with most students saying things that are completely off the radar. Here's what happens. Why did you do that? That's her question. Why did you do that? Because she did this And in their minds, we react to a person according to how they deserve. We react to a person according to what they have done to me. She will often say to the student, why not forgive? Have you thought about why they did that? No, immediately it is within their rights to respond in kind to how people deserve to be treated. And so that's what's beautiful about this text. The apostle, he puts behavior out and says, here's what you're to do. And then the second section, it says, here's why you do it. Here is what fuels. You know, in Romans 12, when he says, in view of God's mercy, it's common throughout all of the New Testament to say, in in your actions, in the way you treat others, you have to have a constant view of, of the mercy of God or what He's done for you. I I love this second section. It starts in verse 3, goes through verse 8. I would say here's the behavior and here are the beliefs. In verses 3 to 8, here are the beliefs that fuel the behavior that He was asking for Christian people to do in the world. Uh, Verse 5, if anyone ever asks you in a what does reformed mean? What's reformed theology mean? You can just give them verse 5. Here's what Reformed theology means. God saves sinners. That's, that's, that's really what it means. We, we don't save ourselves. It's not because of our good works. It's, it's nothing we've done. What we hold to, why our worship is so dynamic, why we can love other people, is because in the core of our being, we believe God saves sinners. And that's what he says here. My personal salvation experience. John Stott breaks it down. He calls it the six ingredients concerning our salvation. I'll run through these fairly quickly. But my personal salvation experience. And so here's what I'm saying. When when your behavior in the world is everything opposite of what the apostle has said, the anecdote for that is to look at your salvation experience. Why am I not submissive to my rulers? Why do I not seek to do good works? Why am I calculating about who I give to and who I serve for? Why am I that way? Well, he says, look at your own salvation experience. Recount it. These six things. The first is our need of salvation our need of salvation. We must be reminded of this. Titus, you and your leaders must remind the people that they needed to be saved. Uh, And under that first ingredient, there's really four things that we'd like to forget. He says in here, do you not remember that we, he's including himself, were foolish and disobedient? That's what we were. We were foolish and disobedient. As you deal with the world, don't forget that you were foolish and disobedient. Secondly, that we have been deceived, he said. We were led astray, we were enslaved. <coughs> to various passions and pleasures. Thirdly, we, we lived in malice and envy. Those are byproducts always of idolatry and self-righteousness, malice. And envy. We have malice towards those who are outperforming us. We have envy towards those who have received things that we feel we are due. He says, Do you not remember that you lived in malice and envy? Fourthly, do you not remember that you were hating others and you were being hated? He says, hostile. First, we must remember I needed saving. I needed rescue and you're dealing with that biggest sphere of life, all of those around you, the profaning cyclist in the parking lot, do you remember that you needed salvation? Secondly, do you remember the source of salvation? In verse 4 and 5, He says, here's the source of salvation. It has originated in the heart of God, God's loving kindness. He says, when it appeared, this epiphany of grace. In the previous chapter, he talks about Jesus being this epiphany, this this all of a sudden, this I've discovered, I see this grace of God. When the kindness of God appeared, it comes from his heart. What were the grounds of our salvation? Verses 4 and 5. The grounds of our salvation, he says, it wasn't by works that you did, but works that he did. In a few moments when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're going to do and what we're going to say to the world and to ourselves is I'm eating the body of another. I'm eating the good works of another. I'm saved and, and God is singing over me because of the works of another. Every time you take that bread, you're making a testimony to the world. I didn't save myself. I didn't save myself this last year, this last week by coming here, by giving, by serving, by the good works that I've done. I didn't save myself he saved me by his good works. I take the bread and I eat it, and I realize that now Christ is in me. Now I am celebrating, and God Almighty is looking down, and he's saying, I'm not going to treat you as your works deserve. I'm going to treat you as Christ's works deserve. Does that mean works aren't important? Absolutely not. I mean, works are so vitally important that only the perfect works of Christ could be presented. The source of our salvation was the heart of God. The grounds of our salvation were the works done by Christ. Fourthly, the means of our salvation. In verses 5 and 6, he says the means, the, the way we were saved was by this washing, this baptism, this cleansing. The symbolic turning from our self righteousness to Christ's righteousness, from our self esteem to Christ's esteem. This renewing by the Holy Spirit, the means of our salvation. As we drink this cup today, we drink the blood of salvation, sprinkled on all things in the, te- in, in the, in the temple, being sprinkled and, and then being set apart. To be a holy people means that we're set apart. Means that there's something that's been applied to us, and it's only because what has been applied to us, it is only because of that, that you're dealt separately than those who are lost. Don't forget the means of our salvation. Fifthly, the beautiful goal of our salvation in verse 7. Literally, we are heirs of the hope and grace. The goal of our salvation. It's not just to avoid hell. It's not just that Jesus and me can sit in our room and we're glad we're not like the other people. No, the goal of our salvation is our God through the power of His Spirit, through the worship of His people, through the the liturgy and the practice of uh, confession and assurance and sacraments together. He is making us beautiful. He is preparing us to be the heirs, the adopted children. You know there are no natural born children of God. Every single child of God. There are no grandchildren of God. Everyone that comes to God comes through adoption. The means of salvation, the washing, renewing, the goal of salvation, adoption, and the evidence of salvation. Good works. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. Uh, The pastoral epistles are full of trustworthy sayings. It's what we Presbyterians hold on to when we talk about creeds. His... His sound words, His trustworthy sayings, these early creeds that Christians would say one to another, the importance of precise doctrine concerning salvation. Here is one He says, this is trustworthy. I want you to insist on them. I want you to remember these things. I want you to say it so that all of those believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. O Christian, we're to be devoted to good works. And to the extent that we refuse it, to the extent when we try to cling to the righteousness of Christ and say, "Uh, because Christ is my righteousness, I don't need to do all of these things. Oh, brothers and sisters, you, you, you must return to your salvation experience. You must recount what God Almighty has done on your behalf. And you glorify Him in your good works. Let me give it to you mathematicians this way. When you think about glorifying God in your good works, here's how you can think about it, all right? What I would do normally to a person, if Jesus wasn't my righteousness, if I didn't feel like I had been saved and and granted this uh, wonderful, mysterious rescue if I didn't know those things, if I didn't believe those things, what I would do normally, in a sense, what my, what my human fleshly mind would think that this person deserves. The difference between that and what you do because Christ has saved you, you can almost mathematically say, here is where God is glorified. And, and, and it, it, it frees you to do and give To people who don't deserve it? To people who don't thank you? To to people who may take what you give and even turn it against you? It frees you to do that. You know why? Because you're not doing it for them. You're not doing it for them. And for the moment of surprise, when someone says, how can you do that to them? You have the opportunity to say, well, if you only knew, if you only knew, what God did for me. If you had any idea of of what now I have been revealed that I deserve and what God has done, if you grasp that as, as I do through the power of the Spirit, your response will be, how could I not do this? Now, those of you who are members of Trinity Owasso, you took vows. You probably did it in public in a worship service. And your third vow is this. Do you now, in humble reliance upon divine grace of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Jesus? You know what that vow is saying? That vow is saying, as, as part of this community, as being a part of this body, this church, I'm taking a vow amongst these people that my, my life should be full of works that show Christ is my Savior. And I'm actually taking this vow in this community of people and in so doing, I'm inviting this community of people to speak truth into my life, to invite me towards good works, to ask about my good works, to celebrate my good works, because that shows that my heart is full of Jesus. This harmonizing of grace and works. The way we deal with the world. The way we learn to love and to serve and to do good works to a world that that crucified our Lord and Savior as we recount what our God has done for us. I think sometimes for some of us it helps to, to look at the three tenses of our salvation. It's listed in here. In the past tense, God called and He justified and He regenerated. He took something that was dead and He breathed life into it. He, he pulled us out of a miry pit. That, that's what He did in the past For us. In the present, He gives us this new life to live, and it is not a life of grasping at idolatry and and, and seeking some forms of of self promotion. In the present, it's a new life of good works by the power of the Spirit. And in the future, there's an inheritance, a hope secured by the good works of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing work of salvation. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that it is not because of the good things we've done. How wonderful and how freeing for everyone in here, Lord, those words should be. He saved us. Oh, Father, thank you for that. Oh, Father, we are quick to forget. We are quick to forget this sanctifying work, and for many of us who've walked with you for years and years, we may, may not remember what life was like before you came. And Father, for, for those of us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that, that it not be necessary for us to try and delve into horrible things that we've did, but Father, to look on this world and say that that is exactly who I would be. And that the kindness and grace of the Lord Jesus saved me. Father, may Trinity be known as a place of good works. May their deeds in this city and in this world shine forth in, in such brightness that the only explanation can be the grace of God has changed a people. The grace of God has enabled a people to give when no one else would give, to care when no one else would care. Lord, we ask this, that your name would be made great. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.